Father, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to learn about all of the Bible, not just a book or a psalm or a portion, but all of it. And Father, how it speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so, Lord, we pray that we might understand how you directed your people in the past, that we might have great appreciation for the way you move in the present and the accessibility that we have, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that understanding the Old Testament and the law of Moses, we would rejoice that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, this evening we dedicate to you in our lives that as we expose ourselves to the truth of your word, that we might be changed from glory to glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Israel was a people on the move. They were not in one place for a long period of time. As we remember, they had a divine guidance system. They had a uh, cloud by day in the form of a pillar and a pillar of fire by night to guide them. And when that cloud moved or when that fire moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. If it stopped for a day, they stopped for a day. If it stopped for a year, they stopped for a year. And they went where God guided them. It must have been awfully difficult traveling with two and a half million people. Primitive conditions, primitive implements, primitive carts. Since I just got back from India, I've got it on my brain. It is such an incredible culture shock. It is probably the most opposite nation to this nation in the world. It is very, very primitive. It goes back, it's like going back in time 4,000 years in many places. One person asked, where are you from? I said, we're from America. They said, where? I said, the United States of America. He had not heard of it. I said, well, it's next to Mexico. Have you heard of that? No. The roads in that part of the world are unlike you've seen anywhere else. They are a very narrow one-lane road that has to accommodate two lanes of traffic, plus bicycles, plus ox carts, plus camels, elephants, foot traffic, and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. You just beep the horn and hope that somebody moves, and sometimes they don't move. And they will thresh their grain out on the road so that as you go, you're going on this, what they call the National Highway, a one-lane road. And uh, you'll have a foot or two feet full of wheat covering the entire road. You have to go around it or go over it. They want you to go over it so it will thresh it. It'll break it down and they can uh, get it out more easily. But for an American to go and see that, it's like, oh, this is amazing. And uh, there are human pulled carts where a guy will have this huge wooden cart and two old wheels and he'll be pulling it down the road and as I was looking at that I, I thought that's what it was like with these ox carts and these people pulling carts for the children of Israel to go through the desert very slowly um, it doesn't have the efficiency that we have in this country it was difficult travel we have come really to a, a, a high point in the book of Exodus the covenant that God is making with these people has been agreed to. They said, all that the Lord says we will do, just tell us, Moses, whatever it is, we'll obey him. They agreed to it. The covenant was ratified. And they become a covenant people or a theocracy. God is in charge. God calls the shots through a mediator. That is Moses. God tells Moses. Moses tells the people. Actually, Moses tells Aaron because Moses was a scaredy cat. And Aaron tells the people. Uh, in some cases, Moses makes the announcements. But uh, God speaks. The people listen. It's the Old Covenant. It's the Old Testament. 
There's all these rituals that are now going to be involved because man being sinful, God being holy, need to come together. And the only way to come together is with a system of sacrifice, a system of approach. As you go back over your notes, and I'm sorry that I don't have a diagram or a drawing uh, of the tabernacle. Um, we'll have one next week. I was in India, so I didn't get that done. But um, if you look at your notes and, and the outline that we began with, the first several chapters, verse, chapters 1 through 11, speak of the subjugation of the children of Israel. They were slaves in bondage to a harsh ruler for a number of years, for 400 years. And then, beginning in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 12 through 14, there's the emancipation where God raises up Moses, he becomes a leader, and um, they are delivered, the children of Israel are delivered uh, from the bondage. Then comes uh, the portion where they travel from Egypt, go across the desert to Mount Sinai, from chapters 15 through 18, and this is what we've called education. God has a lot of lessons to teach them. Uh, a lot of lessons they really never learned. Um, lessons that you and I still haven't learned. That God is trying to teach us. And then, the next portion is where God reveals Himself and meets with them. In chapters 19 through 40, Revelation. And chapters 25 through 27, God gives to Moses a blueprint to build this odd-looking structure that was movable called the tabernacle from the Latin tabernaculum, or tent. And if you have an NIV, it'll say the tent of meeting. Uh, to my left is the Ark of the Covenant, as seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it comes from actually the Old Testament. And then uh, further to the left is the seven-branched lampstand called the menorah that was in the holy place. Uh, to my right, uh, to your left, is the table of showbread. And we used to have actual loaves of bread that were glazed and put on here. And through the moves, they got trashed. And uh, so y you have to imagine six loaves uh, piled on each side, 12 loaves altogether. And they stacked pretty high. They were pretty sizable loaves. They were baked in special pans. And they were placed in special pans upon the table of showbread, which was also in the holy place. And right before the veil, as you entered into, not as you, as the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, was an altar of incense, which is uh, to your far left or to my far right. Now the Ark of the Covenant really is, is, the, is the high point of the whole tabernacle. And tonight I'd like to just describe the whole tabernacle to you, but the Ark of the Covenant becomes the principal piece of furniture in the tabernacle and it becomes an incredible type that is spoken about in several chapters in the New Testament. So if you read the New Testament, if you don't understand this uh, portion of it, much of the New Testament, even if you don't understand the tabernacle, becomes nonsensical to you. So it's important that we understand it. The ark was an intriguing piece of furniture. Later on, when they cross the Jordan River and go into the land of Israel, the priests carry the ark upon their shoulders and the Jordan River opens up. It parts as the ark that is covered by linens is taken across and placed uh, toward the other side, toward Gilgal and the other side of the Jordan River. Then years later, of course, we read about the ark being captured by the Philistines and... Uh, um, it was placed in the temple in Ashdod. You can imagine the Philistines thought, we captured the sacred vessel of the Israelites, the power of Israel. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, put it in Ashdod, in the temple of Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, their principal god. And they would put the Ark in front of this huge statue. And it says when they came the next day, the statue of Dagon had fallen flat on its face before the Ark, as if it were worshiping the Ark which really bothered the Philistines, so they stood it back up, not knowing how it happened. The next morning they came and it was bowed again. This time the head was broken off in both hands. God plagued them. And God bothered them so much that they said, okay, uncle. And they gave the ark back from the Philistines back to Israel. 
When the ark was captured by the Philippines, by the Philippines. Of course, General MacArthur, no. This is called jet lag, by the way. This is how it works. Words just come out that way. Let's see, in India, seven, it is 10 minutes to 8 tomorrow. So you see, I'm already on tomorrow's time. When it was captured by the Philistines in the Philippines, <laughs> when uh, Eli the priest heard that the ark was captured and that his two sons were killed, Hophni and Phinehas, the news of his two sons upset him, but not as much as the news that this piece of furniture was captured. And when he heard it, he was so brokenhearted, he fell backwards as an old man and he, killed him. he, he was killed. The wife of Phineas, Phineas died along with Hophni. When the wife of Phineas heard she was pregnant, she went into premature labor and had a son and named the kid Ichabod. If you are looking for biblical names for your kids, I would not suggest Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory of God has departed because the ark was captured and taken to the camp of the Philistines. Later on, the ark, after a period of time down in the house of Obed-Edom, is taken and David says, hey, let's bring it up to Jerusalem. They put it on a cart. And uh, Uzzah seeing that this cart might topple by the road, puts his hand to steady the ark lest it fall down and God struck him dead. Even though he had good intentions, God gave specific orders how this thing was to be carried, not on an ox cart. And you can see there's a pole on either end of the ark. It was to be carried by priests. It was to be hand carried. Now they had carts and they thought, you know, what's wrong with a little modern technology? Put it on, an, on a cart and we'll just whip it up to Jerusalem. But God said, no, it's to be carried by the priests. The thing that I'd like you to walk away from more than anything else is how easy God has made it. In the Old Testament, the system of approach was an elaborate system of religion, the Jews' religion. Jesus said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The only way you could come was through a sacrifice of an innocent animal. And you had to go through purification rites and there was an elaborate system. It says in the book of John, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. We have accessibility. We don't have to go through a priest like in the Old Testament. We don't have to go through all these rituals of religion. We can go directly to God through one mediator, Jesus Christ. That's awesome. We have instant access to God. And God hears us, unlike the Old Testament. I want to clarify something too. God is not a, a God of religion. God only established in history one religious system and that was Judaism. Through Jesus Christ he abolished religion. Christianity is not a religion, though it's called that in college courses and in Encyclopedia Britannica and on and on. It's misnamed. The system of approach is simplified and it all is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we see the fulfillment of Christ and, and, and Hebrews is written around this theme. Okay, tonight, let's take a tour. Set the Wayback Machine, if you remember Rocky and Bullwinkle, the professor in Sherman. See, this is my frame of reference, cartoon world. And you set the Wayback Machine for about 3,500 years ago. And we're going back to a conversation that Moses is having on a mountain with God. The conversation lasts a long time, 40 days. They had a lot to talk about. God gives the law to Moses, but also detailed blueprints for this odd-looking building called the tabernacle and the furnishings inside of it. Now, in the first few verses of our chapter tonight, God tells them to take an offering. Do you remember when the children of Israel were back in Egypt and God says, when you leave Egypt, you're going to spoil the Egyptians. You're going to ask them for their gold and their silver and all their fine linen, and they're going to give it to you. And Egypt was so glad to get rid of Israel. 
because of the plagues. When Israel said, hand us over your uh, gold and your silver and all your fine stuff, they said, take it, just get out of here. And they left. Why did God have them spoil the Egyptians? So that they could build the tabernacle. That's what they're going to do with all the gold and the silver. They didn't put it around their necks and say, hey, we look pretty fashionable. It was for this structure. He tells them to take an offering. It is estimated that if the tabernacle were to be built today, it would cost $5 million plus some because of the amount of gold, uh, the skins that were used, uh, the labor for the embroidery and so forth, $5 million. Now verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Notice, from everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. I love that about the Lord. God takes an offering so different than most preachers do. When was the last time when somebody took an offering? I don't care if it's uh, a television, radio network, or a ministry. They said, look, if you'd like to give to this ministry, we only want those to give who have a real willing heart. Otherwise, keep it. Keep it for yourself. No, you hear things like, you know, this month is a tough month. And we're really struggling this month. Now, they probably are struggling, and I, I don't want to simplify that, but the thing is, so many unbelievers, the thing they pick up about Christian media or Christian churches is that they always ask for money. That's not true, but that's one thing that they pick up on, and sometimes we overdo it. Um, in the New Testament, Paul said, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows, sows abundantly will reap abundantly. So let each man give as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how God takes his offering. Don't give it because you're pressured to do it. Out of necessity, oh, I have to do it. But look at God's broke. That's what the guy said on the radio, God's broke, he needs a hand. We've got to bail him out. Okay, I really wanted to use it for this, but I'll do it. You can motivate people out of guilt. There are people who are skilled at fundraising. We have chosen to take an offering based upon this scripture in 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver. And there's agape boxes throughout the church and... We let people know about it, and it's between you and the Lord, and we don't want you to feel pressured. God loves a cheerful giver. So God says, take it, only those who are um, willing to do it. I think the church has stooped to a very low level of pressuring people. I think it's a shame. The amazing thing here is later on we see that Israel gave so much, Moses had to say, stop, you're giving too much. Isn't that awesome? And that's like a first, where the work of the ministry was, they gave, you know, $5 million worth. They finally said, just stop, you're giving too much to the Lord. While I do not believe in pressuring people for money, and I never will, and I never look at the account books as to who gives what in this church, I, don't, I just don't want to know. I do know that in any church, including this one, a very small percentage of people give to the Lord's work. And it's that small percentage actually that carries it. Uh, and that a lot of people, you know, when they hear things like, yeah, God loves a cheerful giver, that's right, I don't want to give. And there's a lot, you know, uh, some of the old um, saints used to say, you can tell that a man is converted if his pocketbook is converted. There's a story of a dad who gave his daughter two dollars and says, Honey, here's two dollars. You go out and spend it. The only thing is one of those dollars belongs to God. You give it to him in the offering. She said, Okay, Daddy. And she was going to the store to buy something with her dollar. And uh, she had two. And Wynn took one of the dollar bills and swept it in the uh, drain storm on the side of the road. And she looked up to God and said, Well, God, there goes your dollar. <laughs> now, there's people who think about giving that way. Lord, I, I can't afford to give you anything. My principle has been I can't afford not to. 
It all belongs to God. I like to take the first portion, the first fruits, the first check that we write, and say, Lord, this is yours. Now, there's true, there's some things that are tight, but that's your business. My business is to honor you with this. But anyway, this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, verse 3, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine linen thread, goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, badger skin and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Now you could look at the metals involved and, and draw out symbolic meanings. For instance, gold is that metal of heaven and could represent heaven. The altar of uh, incense is made out of gold. Uh, some of these things are made out of gold, yet the altar of brass or the altar of sacrifice is made out of brass. Brass is a metal of judgment because that's where the sacrifice was slain, the animal was offered and burnt upon the altar of sacrifice made out of bronze. Uh, gold altar was one for incense. Silver is the metal of redemption. Uh, Israel redeemed anything, either the firstborn child with a couple shekels of silver or an animal with silver. Jesus at his crucifixion or right before was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and um, so on. The most amazing thing about this tabernacle is what it represents. It's a model the Bible says, of heaven. I don't know exactly what that means, but as I look at the book of Revelation, there's quite a lot of similarity. There's a labor in the Old Testament of washing, and in the book of Revelation, it's not a labor of liquid, it's a glassy sea, a solid glassy sea, a huge thing. Instead of a mercy seat and a place where God would meet, there's the throne of God suspended over this glassy sea. And there are angels around the throne of God as there are cherubim around the mercy seat. It seems that the tabernacle is a model of heaven. Listen to a couple of scriptures. Hebrews chapter 8 says, These serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See that you make it everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And then in the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, the writer says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true. He entered into heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So if you've ever had a building built and, or a home and they'll make a model of it so that you can see what it looks like, though it's not exactly like it. I mean, you know, you have little balsa wood parts, balsa wood uh, um, ceilings and, and railings and so forth. It's a model. You get a picture, an idea of what that home's going to look like. It seems that the tabernacle was a model, a type of heaven. For that reason, you can understand why so much detail is given to it. Some of you may have wondered, man, there's so much written about the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle is given more space in the scripture than any single subject. The creation account is given a few verses in two chapters. Fifty chapters speak about the tabernacle in incredible detail, probably because of its being a model. Okay. We're going to take a tour. Let's say you're in the wilderness and you're walking toward the tabernacle. First thing you see is a huge court outlined by linen that is suspended over boards. It's a seven-foot-high wall, just about. It is 75 feet wide. That's what you notice as you're walking up to it, this huge courtyard, 75 feet wide, 150 feet deep. Inside there is a tent, but you can't see that yet. You're walking up to it, and you notice there's a gate. One way of approach. You can't say, I'd like to go in another way. You can't go in another way. There's only one entrance. And it happens to be a gate that's 30 feet wide. And as you go through it, you see an altar. 
a huge brass altar. And upon that altar, a sacrifice for you will be offered. There's only one approach, and you have to bring a sacrifice. That means you can't enter this thing or, or, or have fellowship with God unless blood is shed on your behalf and sacrifice is made. It's very picturesque of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He who tries to come in another way is a thief and a robber. You have to come by blood, by him. You'd meet the priest at the entrance of this huge veiled structure, and he would uh, ask if you have your sacrifice, and you take the animal and you give it to him, and he would kill it and drain its blood at the base of the altar and then offer the sacrifice. Then, let's say you walk into this courtyard, past the altar and past the laver of washing. You would then see a tent structure that uh, had four coverings on it, Lin, uh, linen, goat's hair, uh, rams, uh, hair, ram skin, and badger skin. Four layers of it. You wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at it what uh, the four layers are, but that's what it was. It's a big tent. The tent is 45 feet deep and 15 feet wide. It's divided into two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place is 30 feet deep by 15 feet wide. If you were a priest, you could go in, and you went in daily if you were a priest. You had to go in daily because there was a lampstand that needed oil, and the lamps were to be continually burning before God, and so you had to fill the lamps in that lampstand every day. And then once a week on Sabbath, you had to come in and change the loaves of bread upon the table of showbread, and the priests' families were able to eat the week-old bread. In fact, they were commanded to eat it. So, you know, you bring the bread home and the wife says, Hey, this is stale bread. Say, you're going to eat it. Sorry. This is a commandment that we're to eat this bread and, and God sustained them in it. Um, as you'd walk into the holy place, you're walking through, uh, and, and I'm presuming here, you'd have to be a priest to do this. But let's say we're just taking the tour. You go through one veil and you get into the holy place, this 30 feet by 15 feet room. You're coming in from the east, and as you come in from the east, on the north side, on your right-hand side, is the table of showbread. On your left-hand side is the menorah, the candlestick. Right in front of you, in front of another veil that separates you from the Holy of Holies, is the altar of incense. If you were to go beyond that veil, well, if you were, God would kill you. You'd be struck dead. But if you were a high priest and you happened to go on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which you were able to, to make atonement for the people, you would see this structure, the Ark of the Covenant, where atonement was made for the sins of the people. Now, inside this Ark, there were three things that were kept. The Law of Moses, the Testimony it was called, a golden pot of manna, they were to preserve a little bit, put it inside there. And Aaron's rod or staff that budded miraculously. All three of these things speak of Jesus Christ. The manna is the bread of life. Je Jesus draws the analogy in John chapter 6. Uh, Moses gave you bread in the wilderness, but I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. Uh, the law speaks of Jesus fulfilling the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill it. It's fulfilled in Christ, and the law was in his heart. And the rod that budded speaks of resurrection. So you could draw beautiful analogies to Jesus Christ. All right. Verse 10. And they shall make an ark, and notice the materials that are being used, of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. And we have made this ark according to dimension. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. Now, wood and gold together speak of the nature of Jesus Christ. That he was fully man, the wood, fully God, the gold. Acacia wood had interesting properties. It was harder and darker than oak. 
It was called incorruptible wood because it would last for years. It just had the strength to endure. But it is sort of a scrub-looking, shrubby-looking uh, uh, bush. Uh, it's not very beautiful. It doesn't really give much shade. It just happens to be good, strong, incorruptible wood. It thrives in dry, arid climate, dry ground. In Israel, you'll see it in the driest of places. Now think of that and listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 53 prophesying about Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him and nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Yet it was overlaid with gold. And Jesus came as the theanthropic son of God, fully man, fully God. Hence, the wood and the gold. Now, the ark was 45 inches long. That's the idea here of uh, two and a half cubits. 45 inches by 27 inches tall and 27 inches wide with the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. On top is a mercy seat. We'll get to that in a minute. It happens to be of solid gold. In the original, it's just plywood here. Um, then there were two angels. And the wings were to hover, they were to look down over the mercy seat, and the wings of the cherubim or the angels were to touch. Around the throne of God, of course, there are the angels. Isaiah, in his vision, instead of cherubim, saw seraphim. Um, uh, there's distinctions between them. I don't know what they are exactly, but there are beings around the throne of God. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it. And put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the, excuse me, the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the ark, uh, into the ark, the testimony which I will give. When Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments from God the first time, he came down and he saw in the camp of Israel, the children of Israel had made a golden calf. They were partying. They were in revelry. And he cast these things down and he broke them. The second commandments, the second set, were placed inside the ark, away from Moses. Don't let Moses touch these things, all right? He's just going to mess it up. So just hide him from him. No, it was to be kept in there for the testimony. Now... The children of Israel said from the beginning, Hey, whatever God tells you, Moses, we'll keep it. They never did. They failed continually throughout their history. That's why they needed blood to atone for their sins. Now, as long as the law was around, it was a reminder to the children of Israel that they had failed, that they had sinned. Paul said, I would not have even known sin unless it were for the law telling me that I was a sinner. Because it says, thou shalt not, but I've done all the thou shalt not, so I'm a sinner. So the law was a reminder of their failure. It was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. As long as the law was around, it was a reminder. Now I can relate to that. When I was younger, I, uh, I had quite a temper. And I came home one day and my brother angered me and my parents angered me and I was you know, playing Joe Karate. And I walked up to my bedroom door and I gave it one, and I didn't, I didn't even know karate. I mean, it's not like I know this. I just kicked my door and put a big hole in my bedroom door. You could see through it. And my father did a very interesting thing. After he killed me, no, what he decided to do is just to leave it the way it was. And now I was going to replace it and pay for it. He said, no, just leave it. For months, there was a hole in my door. As soon as you walk in the front door of my parents' house and you would look to the left, there's a hole in the door. And everybody who came in would ask, what's that hole doing in the door? And I'd sit in the corner, oh, absolutely embarrassed. Well, let me tell you, Skip came home and he was angry and he kicked a hole in the door. It was a, always a visible reminder of my failure. As long as that hole was in the door. It's interesting, I... I've been at, the, at Billy Graham's house a couple times, as you know, where Franklin, his son, and I are good friends. And Ruth Graham in the kitchen still has the bullet hole in her lower cupboard that Franklin put there when he was younger that he shot one of his guns through 
and uh, he was playing or cleaning it, and uh, he was shooting it, and it ricocheted, and, uh, and she left it. She still left it there, and she points it out every time you go in there, and Franklin, uh, thanks, Mama. It's, it's a reminder of failure. Okay. What does God do with all that? Look at the next few verses. You shall make a mercy seat. Now, it's going to cover the broken law, the reminder of their failure. You make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold, hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at two ends, one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. The most valuable part of the ark is that solid gold top with solid gold angels. It's also the most important part of the whole kit and caboodle. The whole thing was that mercy seat that gave atonement. Verse 22. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony of all the things that I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This box and this lid was the place where God would meet with the children of Israel. It's the only time we read about God meeting at a specific location was on top of that box. In fact, in Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, it says, When Moses entered the tent of the meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim, above the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony, and he spoke with him. He heard the voice coming from right above that mercy seat between the two cherubim. In Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. God has always desired to meet with people, to fellowship with people. But there's a major roadblock between man and God, and that is we have sinned, we have broken the commandments, we have failed. God, to come up with a plan to help that, made a mercy seat. He wanted to meet with people. The law was kept under the mercy seat. And uh, God made atonement for their sins through the blood of a lamb. Now remember, God said, If you obey my voice, then I will bless you in these ways. If you disobey my voice, so on and so forth. Israel disobeyed God's voice a lot. So atonement would be made right here. Now in Leviticus chapter 16, you might want to turn there. Not only did God meet with them, but it says God atoned for their sins. Verse 15 of Leviticus 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because their transgressions. For all their sins, so he shall do for the tabernacle of the meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Blood was sprinkled on that mercy seat to make atonement for their sins. So, the law that once condemned them is now covered by blood. There is now, as he sprinkles blood upon this mercy seat, literally blood between the reminder of their failure and the angels that are looking down upon the blood where God is meeting with them between the cherubim. There's something that's between failure and God, and that's blood that is sprinkled upon the mercy seat. That's the only way God would atone for their sins. Now, a question is often asked. How can blood of animals in the Old Testament do any good? I mean, why, how did a goat or a lamb sprinkle its, sprinkle its blood? So what? How could that have any efficacy before God? Well, the same way a check has efficacy when you bring it to the bank. If I were to write you a check for a million dollars, well, 
let's use a different analogy because it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't do you any good. Let's say someone who had millions of dollars wrote you a check for a million bucks. The check is a piece of paper. It has no inherent value at all. But it represents something when cashed. You bring it to the bank, they look at it, they see the guy has it in his account, and it's as good as the gold that backs it. And if he's got it, you go through all the right channels, you can get that thing cashed, you'll have a million bucks. The blood of animals has no inherent value at all, but it represented something that would take place years after, the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament animals never took away sin, Hebrews tells us. It's simply kafar in the Hebrew, covered them until full atonement could be made as that check was cashed 2,000 years later through Jesus Christ. Now, in Leviticus chapter 16, and we read verse 14, when the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, at that moment, a transaction took place. This seat where God would meet with people, this seat that housed the Ten Commandments that was a representation of their failure, became a throne of God's grace and a throne of God's mercy, hence the word mercy seat. That which separated man from God has been atoned for. Now we say, well, there's no mercy seat today. Yes, there is. Um, there's so many scriptures, I wish we had the time to read them, but go home and read chapter 9 and 10 of the book of Hebrews. And it gives the beautiful analogy of the mercy seat and the sprinkling and the priests going in and the blood of animals. And then in uh, Romans chapter 3 it says, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely through the redemption that is in His Son, whom God has set forth to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is the Greek word hilasterion, which is translated in Hebrews 9 as mercy seat. It's the same word. The word mercy seat in Greek is hilasterion, propitiation. Jesus Christ is the mercy seat. It's the place where God will meet with man and no other place. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus came and fulfilled all that we read about in the Old Testament, all the Old Testament sacrifices, the shedding of the blood, so that God will meet man in no other place than over the shed blood of his Son. So if you want to come to God, you have to admit that you're a sinner, that you need to be cleansed. You can't make up your own religion or come up with your own system or say, all roads lead to God. No, they don't. They lead to some God, but not the true God. Only Jesus Christ will lead you to the true God and have fellowship with Him. God will meet you no other place. You say, well, I'm not going to meet Him then. Well, you will too meet Him one day. But since your sins were not put upon Jesus Christ, the mercy seat, you'll have to pay for them eternally yourself. That's why the gospel's good news. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. An awesome, awesome contrast. Verse 23, you shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. Now we're talking about the table of showbread. A cubit its width and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make it for a frame of a handbreadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall put, make four rings of gold, put the rings in the four corners that are on its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide on top, uh, where its dimensions 22 inches high. Uh, where it, and, and this, again, is pretty much to scale, but you have to imagine loaves of bread that are stacked pretty high on this thing in special pans uh, that were put on it. And then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. But before we go on to the lampstand, let's consider this table of showbread. Twelve tribes, which represent, uh, twelve loaves, which represented twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Josephus, you've heard that name before the Jewish historian who was hired by the Roman government to tell the history of the Jews. Flavius Josephus tells us that in 70 AD, 
as the temple was being destroyed, and he was writing about it as he was a witness of it, he said that as uh, Flavius Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, the emperor of Rome, came and besieged Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed. Titus went back to Rome and had this huge victory parade on the streets of Rome. According to Josephus, they brought out in the victory march of Rome the table of showbread that was captured and the menorah, the golden lampstand that was captured. And when the Romans saw that they had captured it, there was an incredible fervor and excitement in the crowds as they saw that the holy uh, sanctuary pieces of the Jews had been captured. If you go to um, Rome today, there is next to the Colosseum a huge arch, the Arch of Titus, and inscribed on the inside, I finally got to see it this last year when I went, they showed the motif, the relief that was inscribed, it was made for Titus after this whole event, and inscribed on it. It shows the table of showbread and the menorah uh, that was captured and the parade of the Romans as they had the victory march uh, in Rome in 70 A.D. Now the bread was changed each Sabbath, and as we said, the bread every week was eaten by the priestly family. Uh, it's certainly a picture of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who gives sustenance and supply uh, to those of us who are believers. Leviticus 24, don't have to turn there, but Leviticus 24 tells us that the bread had to be made a certain way. You had to take wheat and grind it, and then bake it, and then place it on the table of showbread. Now, Jesus said something interesting. He said, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will bring forth fruit. Jesus was ground in suffering at Gethsemane. He was crucified at Calvary. And he rose in newness of life to give life to those of us who believe in him. He is our bread that uh, gives us life before the Lord. Then the lampstand, verse 31, you shall make also a lampstand of pure gold. Now this is interesting. These other articles were made of acacia wood with gold overlaying them except for the lid, the mercy seat. But that lampstand had to be made entirely of gold. So you can imagine that uh, this thing would cost $5 million, that much gold. The lampstand shall be, full of, uh, shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. Six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side, three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with an ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same. And then in verse 36, their knobs, their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be of one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall uh, arrange its lamps so that they give... Uh, light in front of it, its wick trimmers and trays shall all be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The only source of light in the tabernacle was that lampstand. In the Hebrew it's called menorah. Menorah. Now, every Hanukkah there is something else. And uh, uh, people have come up to me and say, now, why do you, you talk about the seven-branch candlestick? But then I look at, at uh, the Hanukkah, the, around Hanukkah, and it's got eight and one, nine altogether. The difference is this. Well, obviously, one has more than the other, but this is how it came about. This is what God commanded to be built. The Hanukkah God never did. The reason the Jews every Hanukkah celebrate and light all the lamps in that thing is because between the Testaments, when uh, the temple was and Jerusalem was under siege by Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, the Syrians, Judas Maccabeus led a revolt, a Jewish revolt against these Syrians, and regained the control of the temple, and there was only enough oil to light the menorah for one day. 
They put it in the menorah, lit it, and as the story goes, in the Maccabean period, in the book of the Maccabees, it lasted for eight days. God kept, miraculously, the lamps burning for eight days. That became known in the Jews as the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. And so they have a Hanukkah, and they would light every day. They'll light one candle out of the source candle, so there's eight in one. But it represents that that menorah, the seven-branched candlestick, was kept lit for eight days miraculously by God. That's the difference between them. The menorah was the only source of light in the tabernacle. The temple was called by the rabbis, because it had the lampstand, it was called the light of the world, interestingly enough. The Jews called the temple the light of the world because of the seven-branched candlestick. It had one stem and six branches. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. I am the light of the world. He drew several analogies from this. It was made, as we said, of one solid piece of gold. Notice in verse 40, you're to make it according to the pattern that was shown you. You can't improve it, Moses. Don't try. Don't improvise it. Don't think, hmm, how can we automate this? You just make it exactly like I said and don't change a thing. No dimensions are given. We don't know exactly what it looked like because there's no dimensions given. Which has presented an interesting problem to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Which is an organization that are devoted to the rebuilding of the Third Temple. They have tra they're training priests. They've made the garments. They've made the headplate of gold, the crown for the high priest. They've made the ephod. They've made certain vessels. They're working right now on a solid gold menorah. Problem is funds to get that much gold. It's already been uh, uh, mapped out of how they do it. And I've talked to them. We've met several of them. They want to see that temple rebuilt. How did it look exactly? Well, we don't know except they have found by the temple an ancient clay tablet that is thousands of years old in the house of a priest that has the inscription of the menorah on it. And they suppose that's probably what it looked like and he would know since he would walk into the holy place being a priest. Then if you go to the village of Remet in the Jordan Valley, there's a Levite city with a synagogue, an ancient city, and on the lintel of the synagogue, on the archway, is the, is in the engraving of the menorah. So with these two pieces and with 400 pages of rabbinic literature that dates way, way back, the Temple Institute has pretty roughly reconstructed what it will look like. I don't think it looks exactly like what we've done, but um, it'll be interesting to see. All right, now we get to chapter 26 and we're out of time. So, I'm going to sum it up for you. Okay? I'm going to sum it up for you. Chapter 26 speaks of the, the, that infrastructure, the curtains, the boards that support the curtains, and the pillars that support the boards. Pillars were set out. Boards were made to have that cloth stretched over. Holes or... Um, Rings were set on the board and rods or poles went through the boards, the rings of the boards, to hold them together so that you could have a fence 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and that thing could stand up. Inside there was a tent and the skins are given, the various layers in verses 1 through 6, linen is the first inside. After that, verses 7 through 13, goat's hair. And then in verse 14, ram skin and fourth, badger skin was put over that. It was to be kept free from the outside light and contaminants, and it was to be kept rigid. That's why they needed the wood and the boards. And then it talks about how the tabernacle is divided, uh, uh, the tent is divided into two, the holy place and the holy of holies, by two veils. And so we close with verse 31 through the end of the chapter. You shall make a veil woven of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine linen thread. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. You shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy, or the holy of holies, which kept the ark of the covenant. 
You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen thread made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Okay. This veil, especially the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, is seen in its significance in the New Testament. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that was in the temple was ripped in two. Now, as you know, only the high priest once a year could go from the holy place into the holy of holies. He came with a small basin of blood, a hyssop bush, and he'd sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. He had to go in after making the proper sacrifices, and uh, as the story goes, he would carry, he put bells of pomegranates around his bottom robe so that the people, and a rope to his foot that would extend through to the outside, and uh, as long as those bells were ringing, it meant he was all right. He's moving around. He's doing what he should be doing, sprinkling it and making prayers and so forth. If they didn't hear anything, it meant only one thing. He's dead. He didn't do it right. He didn't make the proper atonement. God was really picky about his approach. And you couldn't go in there and check on him. And so the rope was attached to his ankle. You just pull the guy out. I tell you, the ministry had some pretty stringent job requirements in those days. The tabernacle, the tent, eventually gives way to a permanent structure built by Solomon called the temple. It's reconstructed later on by Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and so forth. And later on by Herod the Great. It's expanded during the time of Jesus Christ. This huge temple built by Herod the Great now has, in the New Testament times, a veil that's 60 feet tall. And during the evening sacrifice, when Jesus died on the cross, can you imagine the shock as people were in the temple, it's Passover time, and this thing gets ripped, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. Who got up there? God ripped it. That's the whole point behind it. God ripped the veil. The veil kept people out. God is saying, come in now. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to come in timorously. You can come in with free access. Jesus, my son, has made the way open for you. So we don't stand afar off. We don't go through all the rituals. God ripped the veil so we can come in and have fellowship with him. Anytime you say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come to you, you're there. You're as there as the priest on the Day of Atonement. It's awesome. Here's the sad thing. The priesthood continues after the death of Jesus for almost 40 years until 70 A.D. when the temple is destroyed by Titus. And the veil that was torn by God is sewn up, according to the history of the Jews. Isn't that just like man? God rips the veil, man sews it back up. God simplifies it, man complicates it. God gets rid of the rituals and man puts religion back there. That's the way of man. Any system that adds religion and rituals and makes it hard to get to God insults God. God has made the way simple. Any system that puts a man as a mediator between you and God is an insult to God. The way is open. You don't have to come through all of the regulations and the rituals or by a human priest. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's awesome. Don't settle for religion. You've got relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father through Jesus Christ. He is the mercy seat. His own blood has been shed. Oh, but I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. Yeah, but you bring yourself under the blood of Jesus Christ. And even as those cherubim gazed down upon blood shed, something that stood between the broken law and God, God will look upon you through the blood of His Son. How foolish then to say, 
I will work my way to God by being a good person. Oh, please. It's better to say, Lord, I cast myself upon your solution. Cleanse me by the blood of your Son. And enjoy God's free access. Jesus, the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight that the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, cleanses a man from all sin. That way of access is made available. Those of us who were far off have now been made near by the blood of your Son. And tonight, Lord, we just enjoy and relish the work that you have done through your Son on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that we would not add to it, we would not complicate it, that we would not sew up the veil that you have ripped. That we would come in the name of Jesus, in simplicity, and as you said, come boldly before your throne to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.